Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for a wonderful breakfast. We ask that you would bless uh, now our time as we turn to your word, to Luke chapter 9, that we would be uh, opened and blessed uh, by your word and uh, fit to be your servants. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, guys, that was a great breakfast. Y'all are short-handed today, and you did a super job. You'd never know it. You'd never know that y'all are short-handed. So, um, all right, we are in Luke chapter 9 today. This is chapter 61 in the E100 book. Interesting that he went, if you looked at the uh, commentary, he really focuses in on evangelism, which I thought was, was interesting. That's not where I would have gone. In fact, it's not where I'm going to go. But um, I think it's, 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 he asked some good questions. All right. So Luke chapter 9 is, um, uh, is just, I think he puts this in as, as one of the key passages because it's just full of nuggets of goodness. We have uh, Jesus calling and sending the disciples. We have Jesus um, uh, feeding the 5,000. We have Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, we have the uh, ominous and uh, wonderful uh, admonition of Jesus to take up your cross and follow Him. And then we have uh, the transfiguration. I've said, I feel like several times uh, this calendar year, that the synoptic gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, are making the case that Jesus is the Christ, uh, then uh, through, through his teaching, through his miracles, and then Peter confesses that he is the Christ, he is transfigured, and then everything else heads towards Jerusalem. We've said that a number of times. Uh, and, and that's where we that's where we come. So we come really to the end of the case that Luke is making. Uh, that he is, if you were to go back and read through the first eight chapters of Luke, he has been uh, making the case both in the uh, birth uh, narrative. Luke gives us the most extensive birth narrative, but also uh, in the teaching and the healing and the casting out uh, of the demons, the calming of the storm. He's even the Lord over the uh, the elements uh, in that way. And so we come uh, now to sort of the turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Now, we haven't been going through Luke, but this is, uh, if you were to read through Luke, this is what, what this would be. And I think that's why uh, the author makes this one of his sort of primary passages. So the first little vignette is when Jesus calls the disciples and then sends them out. He calls and then sends. And that is a really important part of our discipleship. Let me read that real quick, just that paragraph, and, uh, and see what we can, we can mine there. It says that He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases, and He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. So He calls them, and He sends them. You probably have some sense of the way in which God called you, some story, a, a series of events maybe, that um, where your faith really became your own. You were raised in the church, you fell away during college, you came back when you had children. Uh, you went to Curcio and you, what you thought was a lively faith took off in a way that you hadn't had before. You 
woke up in a ditch uh, one, one morning and thought, what have I made of my life? Just whatever it is, uh, you have come to, you have a story, and whether you think you have the most boring testimony uh, in the world, or whether you have one that they'd make a movie about, uh, your story is nevertheless the story of, of rescue, a story of a sinner becoming a saint, and Jesus reaching into your life, and, uh, and making you His. So it's on a cosmic, uh, angelic, heavenly, eternal level, your story is magnificent. Uh, no matter what Hollywood would say about it. I don't think my story is very Hollywood worthy, but I still think it's pretty great because it got me into heaven. So, um, so I don't know what yours was, but the thing about being called is that you're not just called, you're also sent. Why would Jesus send them out? Now, I, you know, you may or may not have the authority to uh, heal diseases and cast out demons. Um, you, you probably do. I think that's. I, I'm not prepared to talk about that right now. Um, but I think that uh, you should try it one day and tell me how it goes. Um, but the um, no, seriously. You know, I, I, I may have told this story before. I really, I, I don't. You know, I don't have a whole, I'm not, I'm an Episcopalian for crying out loud. I don't have a whole lot of uh, uh, experience with that. But one time I did go on a hike with a bunch of guys. Actually, I 17 times I went on a hike with a bunch of guys. But one time, um, I, uh, we had this one guy and he said, he said, I know this is, is very strange, but I have always known whenever I go in somewhere if there's a ghost. And he, I mean, listen, you can imagine there was some vulnerability in, in that because he, he's afraid to say that it sound, sound a little bit crazy. But he says it's kind of a party trick. He was in a band. Uh, all these guys uh, really, uh, they thought it was cool, you know, that he could do that. But it, but it wasn't anything he was really proud of. And he, we got it really deep into his story, uh, which was, there was a lot of, um, it, was, it was a heartbreaking, at least what he was telling me, the part he was telling me was, was heartbreaking. And he came that night around the campfire and he asked for prayer that was sort of the deal around the campfire that night. And he, I was very pleased that he came forward and asked for prayer. And I started praying for him. And I started, I had my hand on his shoulder, and I started feeling nauseous and, um, and very hot. And I had to take off my jacket as we were praying. And then this very cold, very bright flash went basically through my body. And I had to sit down, and I kind of—I I mean, I didn't pass out, but it was very—it was very strange. It was the only time anything like that has ever happened to me, uh, and and he felt like he had been—he couldn't tell when there was a ghost anymore. Like it was—it was—it was, it was uh, sort of a deliverance. So in that sense, I think there are—we uh, haven't left that realm. That's not. This is not just something for that that time period. Nevertheless, I wonder what you think about when Jesus says. You're going out to proclaim the kingdom. That might seem a little bit more comfortable than casting out demons. And, um, and yet he says, don't take anything with you. Why would, why would Jesus issue such a command? I mean, if, if you are going on a mission trip, every mission trip you've ever been on, you, you're taking six bags, right? I mean, you've got, you've got, some of them may have saws and tools and stuff that you're going to leave down there. Or, uh, who knows what else. But, but, you're, um, but you're, you're, you're not going unprepared, even on a mission trip. Certainly not on vacation, but even on a mission trip. Why would Jesus tell people, uh, tell His disciples He's sending not to take anything? What do you think? 
His word is sufficient. Okay, good. Trust. Trust. Okay. Trust that God is going to provide. So, so what he is um, doing is as he's going, or as the disciples are going, that by the Spirit, he will be, God will be with them the whole way and will provide what they need. So this is an exercise not just in can you actually carry on my ministry with me, but he is, uh, it is an exercise in trust. So interesting, isn't it, that Jesus gave them these few opportunities to go and proclaim to carry on his ministry before he left them so he could give them some feedback and talk it through with them before he actually uh, left them and it was it ministry. That's just good leadership, and He's training them up for when to take over. So when God sends you out, are you to take nothing with you? Have you ever been to Cuba with no bags? <laughs> hand sanitizer. Good idea. Listen, that's in their pot. He doesn't say, there's no, it doesn't say in the Scripture, don't take hand sanitizer. Right? Tunics. Um, no staff. doesn't say anything about hand sanitizer. Um, no bread, no money. That, that's, hard, that's hard to think about. That's hard to think about. Essentially what he's saying is go be homeless and see if I'm good to my word. I, I think that there is varying degrees of this for us. Angela Atkins will get up at the uh, 10.30 service. She already got up at the 8 o'clock service. She said, I felt like God was calling me to help with Church Without Walls do their Maundy Thursday service. She didn't know how to do that. She just said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. And she went forward and God has provided for her in a really wonderful way and provided for that whole ministry. Not provided for Angela, but has done what he wanted to do. All she had to do was say yes. Um, there's all sorts of things. How, how is it? You know, I think about any time uh, we've ever moved anywhere, we think, well, how is it going to work out for our kids? Well, you're just going to have to find out. You know? so, um, but there's all sorts of questions like that. And you may have an idea of, of what, what God has required of you when He has sent you to do something wild like that. I can promise you that on those hiking trips, we had bags of extra clothes. Um, and we, we took food with us because it wasn't going to be available out there. But that wasn't what uh, God was calling. God wasn't calling us to hunt and fish on those hiking trips. He was calling us to other things. But here, he, the God, God was sending them out among people who could provide for them. And so they were going to have to trust um, the food didn't appear miraculously at that time. Uh, God provided through the people actually that they were ministering to. So I just want to just highlight that before we get into the uh, feeding of the five thousand. Uh, that that when you are called, you should expect to be sent. Like ministry is a part of growing in Christ. Part of the Holy Spirit working in you is the Holy Spirit working through you. And so, whether it be going to church without walls, which I hope you will, or St. Mary's, or Interlochen, or whether it is uh, participating in the, in the meals ministry that we have here, or uh, pastoral care, whatever it is, God is going to send you. And uh, resistance is futile. Uh, <laughs> so Herod can't figure out who this Jesus is, and it's very interesting. We have Herod who is perplexed by Jesus. This is, the, this is just the way that Luke sets sets it up. Herod is perplexed by Jesus. Who is this? He's afraid. He's only thinking about himself because he had John, John the Baptist beheaded. Is this John the Baptist? Come back to get me. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Peter is very clear about who Jesus is. Now, maybe not in Peter's mind yet at, at this point, but he, he gets the answer right anyway. And on 
And those two things come on either side of the feeding of the 5,000. If you know about um, ancient texts, when, when the author makes a sandwich like that, you have something, uh, a small bit here and a small bit down here. What's in the middle of those is he's pointing to. They're like beacons pointing at this. So in the middle of somebody saying, who is this? And one of his disciples saying, this is who this is. This is the Christ. Luke gives us a picture of who Christ is with the feeding of the 5,000. Pretty neat how he does that. Our authors don't work that way. We just, we just, we work in order, right? But, but this is the way that they constructed it. So on their return from, from going out, the, the apostles told him, uh, told Jesus what they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So he's taking them on retreat. They're tired. They've, they've been, <laughs> maybe they hadn't eaten in a while because they, they didn't, but probably they had been provided for. But they, they had been in ministry, and they were just, they were really, they were tired. They needed to process this, and he pulls them away on, on retreat. The crowds learn about it, and they go, to the, they go to Jesus. They find Jesus out. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, hey, uh, guys, you're going to have to give us a couple days, right? We're, we're on retreat here. Healthy boundaries. Jesus doesn't, doesn't do that. Not a bad thing to do sometimes, but Jesus doesn't do that uh, here. When, when they followed Him, and He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So He's, he's doing exactly what He had just sent the disciples out to do. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to Him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provision. For we are here in a desolate place. So it's probably three, three or four o'clock. Sun's getting low in the sky, and they know if they don't start get if they don't start getting moving, the crowds are they're going to be all stuck there. And he said to them, "You give them something to eat." And they said, "We don't have anything more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people." For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, "Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each." They did so, and they had them all sit down. I love this. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing. He broke the loaves and gave it to them, uh, to the disciples to set before the crowd. He took, he blessed, looked to heaven, broke, distributed. Where have you heard that before? It's the Last Supper. It's a prefiguring of the Passover meal. There's, it is, there's a sacramental nature to what Jesus is doing here. And, you know, I do think the author, if you looked in the commentary, it's very interesting. He says, I wish I knew what that looked like. Did the loaves just fall from the sky? Probably not. Did they just sort of somehow replenish themselves in the baskets? Probably so, but what does that even look like? Did they just... Did, when they're pulling stuff off the loaves, the, the loaves just kept grow. I mean, that would have been kind of weird to see the loaf growing. And like, am I going to eat that? Like, I mean, you don't know what um, that is. But nevertheless, they all ate it, and they were satisfied. And they had 12 baskets left over. Now, what's interesting is that uh, the feeding, you may know this, the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four of the disciples, uh, four of the Gospels. And we've said before, whenever a, a, a passage is repeated, but especially if it's repeated from the synoptics to, to John, 
you really want to pay attention at the significance. Only really the, um, uh, not even the transfiguration uh, is is in all, all four. It's in three, I think. Uh, but the, um, but only the crucifixion and the resurrection uh, are in all. Not even the incarnation, uh, but but the feeding of the five thousand is in all four. Uh, it's a watershed moment. It is the people realizing who this is, that he is the bread from heaven. Now, the people who were reading Luke's gospel or Matthew's gospel uh, or any of the gospels for that matter, when they're uh, reading this, they would have remembered the people of God in the wilderness receiving bread. Remember, that was that's the manna from heaven. They, they would, this story recalls the, the wandering in the wilderness and the and the feeding of the fi- I mean the feeding of the people of Israel for forty years, and uh, and the, in fact they say later on uh, after this they say you know Moses gave us uh, bread because they're seek- they they're seeking Jesus out again because they they want more bread right and Jesus, that's where Jesus says I am the bread I'm the bread of life that's in in, in um in John chapter six. But nevertheless, uh, the feeding of the, this miraculous meal speaks uh, of God's as, as one who provides um, in a way that you would not expect. And I've always thought about how when you are, uh, if, if God sends you to something and you feel inadequate for the task, you're in a perfect place for, uh, for God to have to provide. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, and this day is no exception, that I crawl into the pulpit saying, okay, God, you're going to have to do this. And He does it. But it's only Him, you know. Um, and how, how, you know, if you guys tell me, wow, you know, nice sermon or whatever, thank you, but I, 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 I never feel like I can take credit for it. It's just, um, I always just say, all right, Lord, you're going to have to take this. i got five loaves and two fish. I pray that exact prayer a lot of times, and you're going to have to make it enough to feed everybody. And He does. He does. So, um, so this miraculous meal is, a, uh, is an incredibly important thing. I do believe uh, in the miracle of it. I don't believe, as some have said, that uh, the generosity of a little boy who shared his, what he had inspired other people to share what they had, and it turns out that everybody just had enough for everybody. I don't believe that. I think they came. They didn't have anything. They, all the disciples had was to offer was five loaves and two fish. Maybe they got it from, probably got it from a little boy. That's only in John, and um, and it was enough. What you have to offer is not enough on your own, but in Christ, it's enough. I think it's very intentional that Luke puts this right next to the sending, the calling, and the sending, because when uh, all the disciples had to offer uh, was uh, was inadequate for the task. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that Luke tells us that Jesus is doing exactly what He sent the disciples out to do, and yet He is the only one who could have stood there and provided the miraculous meal. So what we do, we do in the name of Christ and in the power of Christ working in us. And it usually, you know, when God works in you, it doesn't usually feel miraculous. It just kind of feels natural, and you look back and you think, "Huh, I didn't see that coming." You know, I didn't expect it to turn out like that. But it's um, it, it just feels kind of natural, and and sometimes, you know, I have lots lots of times, lots and lots of times, whether it's financial provision or 
um, or anything. You can look back and say, well, somebody wrote a check. There's nothing miraculous about that, except that the need that that check met uh, at the time it met, at just the exact right time that they knew nothing about, God's hand was in that, right? And so I don't think it looked really spectacular from the crowd's perspective, but the disciples knew that they didn't have much, and all of a sudden they had plenty, plenty for everybody. In fact, they had more left over than they had to start out with, which I always find remarkable. So moving on, there's probably lots and lots to say about that. I'm sure there is. Um, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. I'm not actually going to get uh, into that too much. Um, simply to say that, you know, usually what we what is um, followed by that is Peter saying, um, or Jesus saying, "I'm going to die," and Peter says, "We're not going to let that happen to you," and Jesus says, "Get behind me, Satan." Luke doesn't uh, cover that. He says, but Luke, uh, Jesus does uh, foretell his own death. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one that he was the Christ. The son of, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Did you know, another thing that all four Gospels do is all four Gospels have Jesus predicting his death and resurrection three times. That's an important important piece. And we have this very, like I said, ominous uh, bit on discipleship. If anyone, and this is right in the same vein. He's saying that you're the Christ, and what Jesus does, He doesn't, he doesn't exalt Himself to the, to the top. He sends Himself to the bottom. Yes, I'm the Christ, and what that means, I'm going to die on your behalf. And in fact, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. Now, they didn't have the context yet of the cross and resurrection. It sounded like Jesus saying, take up your electric chair. That would have been uh, very... This was, a, 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 this was a, a instrument of death. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. To follow Christ is to die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And they probably recoiled uh, at this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake uh, will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself, or loses or forfeits his soul? I want to read a uh, quote that I love. This um, the book is by a guy named John Eldridge. It's called Wild at Heart. It got a lot of publicity about 18 years ago. But the quote is from G.K. Chesterton. And it's about courage. He says, Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. And he quotes Jesus. He says, He that will lose his life, the same shall save it. That's sort of the King James Version of what we just read. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He that loses his life, the same shall save it. It's not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It is a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. It might be printed on an alpine guide or a drill book. The paradox is the whole principle of courage. Even of quite earthly or quite brutal courage. 
A man who is cut off by the sea may save his life if he will risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and he will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. And I wrote, and this is, I was much younger then, but I wrote, yee-haw, right next to, uh, right next to him. Uh, I'd probably be a little more cautious uh, now, but. Bonhoeffer probably had it a little more somberly when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer wrote that, as far as I know, uh, uh, staring down the face of, of um, Nazi Germany, and of course Bonhoeffer would go on to be um, put in the concentration camp and would die there. This is the whole quote. You may have heard that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Here's the whole quote The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. This relates really well to the sermon, actually. It is that dying of the old man, the old self, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with His death. We give our lives over to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, He bids him to come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow Him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at His call. When Bonhoeffer says that when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die, he is saying that we are detaching ourselves from the things that have defined us, and we are now defined by Christ. And I think that is what Jesus is saying when he says, take up your cross. That we are to identify ourselves uh, with Christ, that he is our identity. And again, this just fits so well with um, the sermon uh, this morning. Jesus actually says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, him will the Son of Man be ashamed of when he comes in his glory. And it sounds like Jesus is saying, If you're ashamed of me, you can forget it, Buster. But I think he's saying that when you're, if you're ashamed of me, that you're, you're naturally turning away. There's, you've made that choice. Um, I, don't think it, I, I don't think it needs to be sort of this work of, uh, of our devotion. But he says in the next breath, I tell you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, what happens next? The transfiguration. They see the kingdom of God. What happens a few weeks later? The, um, the death and resurrection. They see the kingdom of God. So they, uh, he's, it's not a threat. It's prophecy. And then finally, in this chapter, we have uh, the transfiguration. I preached on that a few weeks ago. 
Uh, we have the disciples, uh, three disciples, Matthew, no, that's the Gospels. Uh, Peter, James, and John going up with, uh, with Jesus on the mountain to pray. And they're up there, they're praying. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that where you go to meet God is up on a mountain, right? That's the, Moses went up on the mountain, Elijah went up on the mountain. Uh, you just go, if, that's, if you want to see God, you go up on the mountain. It's a lot closer to Him, I guess. And so, um, and so they went up on the mountain. Nothing spectacular. They're getting ready to head down, and all of a sudden Jesus starts glowing. His face uh, turns bright white. His clothes turn bright white. And, um, and, Mo- and Moses and Elijah show up. Now, you probably remember the, the um, scene in the Old Testament. We, I think we talked about it in the E100 class where Moses goes up. He receives the law. He comes back down, and he's glowing. His face is glowing. Uh, Certainly Luke's audience would have remembered this scene. The disciples probably, in retrospect, would have remembered that uh, Old Testament scene. Moses is glowing because he's been in the presence of God. In fact, he asked God to if he could see his glory. And God says, you can sort of go hide in the rock, and I will put my hand over you and pass by you, and then you can look at the backside of my glory, but you cannot see my face, for you will be consumed. This is holy Moses. Uh, you cannot... Now, it's interesting, because elsewhere it says Moses spoke to God as a man speaks to his friend face to face. Nevertheless, when, when to see God in His full glory, He could not look Him uh, in the face, He would be consumed. Peter, James, and John look God in the face, essentially, and they are not consumed. Moses reflected God's glory. Jesus was God's glory. Big difference. The cloud comes down. Moses and Elijah are there. Peter and James and John are terribly fearful. And they say, uh, and then they hear the voice from heaven, This is my son. Listen to him. You know, and I always thought, you knuckleheads, what he's saying is, you know, you're not listening to him, just start listening to him. What, what he's saying, I think, is rather than listening to Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah now listen to my son. Uh, he is the one who has fulfilled the law and the prophets. Listen to him. And to that end, the cloud lifts, they pick up their heads, and Jesus is by himself. Right? Peter, I think, was right to want to keep it going. Um, he, he was right to want to stay. We, it, we should want to be in the presence of Jesus. We w- should want to be in, in glory. Uh, you, it, you should look forward to heaven. And that's what Peter wanted. He wanted that communion with, with the glorified Christ. It doesn't mean that you should want to leave this earth. God has called you to what He's called you to. He's sent you out. But I do think that there is, that is one of the wonderful hopes of heaven, uh, of the Christian life, is, is that we look forward to that time where we are with the glorified Christ. We can look Him square in the face and not be consumed, but be filled with wonder and glory. And, and so, I don't know if you've ever read any of those uh, heaven is real kind of books. They're remarkable. Um, I've, I've read... In full, I've read one of them, um, and it's strange. I mean, it's not—it's not what I would expect. I don't—it's not scripture. You know, maybe she's making some of it up. I don't know, but I think it's helpful uh, in the sense that it reminds us that that being in the presence of Christ is the goal. 
He's, he's the goal. Jesus is the goal. And, and so, um, so Peter is right uh, to want that. And yet, it, it wasn't time yet. He was still of this earth and Peter had lots to do. And if Peter had gotten his wish, we wouldn't be here because he wouldn't have told anybody. Right? And so, um, and so we needed Peter to, and Jesus needed Peter to, to stay and to, and to proclaim his word. And I mean, all of Scripture came about because of, of what Peter, all the New Testament came about because of what Peter did, even though he didn't write much of it. But Mark was one of his uh, di- main disciples. Peter did write some of it. Peter, uh, Paul came to Christ and, and went through the Jerusalem Council and, and got Peter's approval and, and all this. So, um, so much of what we have is because Peter was not allowed to stay, but sent back down. Nevertheless, he was, uh, he was, it's easy to make fun of him, um, but it sounds kind of hippie. Hey, let's just, keep, you know, let's just make these tents and keep it going, man. But, um, <laughs> but it's really, I think, there's a, I think there's a goodness and a rightness about Peter wanting to, to stay in Christ's presence. So, they, anyway, nevertheless, they, they, Jesus says, um, don't tell anybody about this until after I'm gone. And you can just... <laughs> That would be so hard. That would be so hard. And I wonder sometimes when he tells tells people not to tell, if he just knows that they're human and they're gonna, that's just gonna make them want to tell all the more. Somebody hear me? Yeah. Don't tell anybody about this. It went viral. All right. Yeah, we're about to time for the questions. Yeah, Josh. At the beginning of the reading we did today, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. So he sends them out to tell everybody, and tells them not to tell everybody. Well, he tells not not don't tell anybody about the transfiguration. Yeah. Right, but I mean, even throughout the Gospels, it's, he heals somebody. Don't tell anybody. He, he performs his miracle. Don't tell anybody. Cast out demons. Don't tell anybody. Well, I think I think there is probably some truth to the, the sort of the viral uh, theory, uh, but there's also a sense in which uh, they didn't have a full understanding of who, who the Christ was. They were expecting a even to the very end, expecting him to. You know, uh, to come in glory, to take, kick out the Romans, to be the king. James and John say, "Hey, let us sit at your right hand." You know, it's uh, it, it, they they want to be his cabinet members. They're expecting greatness even up to the very end. And so, it wasn't in the idea of a crucified Messiah is uh, incredibly offensive and totally inglorious, and um, and they never would have dreamt it until it happened. They could see it in retrospect. Oh, one, two, three, go. Um, I I think that some of that is also the timing of it because you know on the after Pentecost comes, obviously everyone is proclaiming Jesus crucified, risen from the dead, and glorified in heaven and Messiah all the way. Um, it was it just wasn't time for it all to be revealed. Yes. So Darla's saying that it was not time yet for it to be revealed. It really is. I mean, overnight, essentially, after the resurrection, they're proclaiming that it's the resurrection itself that makes them proclaim that He's the Christ. Yes. That bears witness to who Jesus It makes everything else make sense. Yeah. 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 Heaven is within you, or some translations among you. Um, 
I think the kingdom of heaven comes to us in the indwelling Holy Spirit and is now. It's not in the great, just in the great by and by. It is invisible to the world what we have in us through Christ, the very God of the universe living within us. And what he's doing in us is not apparent until until God begins to work through us, as right. you discussed. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's his pleasure to give us the kingdom. And we don't have to wait until heaven to have it. We can have it now. Yeah, no, I appreciate that emphasis. I'm sure I did not uh, place that emphasis, but uh, Darla's saying that the kingdom of heaven is now. The Holy Spirit's working in you. Um, and, and so it's not just, you know, hold on until we can escape this dump. It's uh, that you are uh, you're actually uh, doing God's work now. The Holy Spirit's in you now. Yes, we have heaven to look forward to, but we have. So I appreciate that. That's, that's a good, uh, helpful addition. Uh, Paul? Yeah, just feeding the 5,000, do you think there's a the question is, do I think there's a significant uh, significance about the 12 baskets? Yes, I think it represents the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, and that would represent to us as Christians uh, all, all of the people of God. So yes, I think, I think there's some significance there. Yeah. Rick, last one. I, I just thought about Jesus, not, Jesus telling everybody not to tell anyone. Yeah, the Messianic some, secret. Some miracle that he just performed or a healing or whatever. Um, I always took it to be that, that Jesus wanted people to come to him for the right reason, not for a magic show or not for you know celebrity or stardom or anything like that. Because I think if they would have said, Josh, I've just healed you, now go tell everybody you know, um, there's going to be people coming to Jesus for perhaps all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Well, which is, um, you know, I could... I can make a joke about how isn't it great that nobody comes to Jesus for the wrong reasons now. Uh, I, I think that, um, um, I mean, it's, it's impossible to take self-interest uh, out of it. But I, uh, and, and I'm not sure entirely that we ought to, uh, but I think you're right. I mean, they, they, we want to see Jesus for who he really is. He's not, he's not a magician. He's our, he's our Savior. Yeah, Richard, last one, then we're done. Mm-hmm. You need to read the chapter after John's feeding the 5,000. That's exactly what yeah. supports what Rick said. Yeah. Okay, so that's your homework. Yeah. <laughs> Find it in John. Read it afterwards. Uh, so next week's chapter uh, 62 and 63, I believe, in the E100. God bless you. Go to church.